0: Well, do you know that discipline of praying scripture? Praying scripture can either be praying prayers that are found in the Bible or praying through any part of scripture, kind of like what I just did with Isaiah 55, you may have noticed, where we turn biblical phrases and language into springboards for our own expanded thoughts in prayer. Praying scripture is a, it's a great discipline. It's a tool, really, for the Christian. It's a, it's a guide for praying. It lifts our prayers. It's a crutch for the weak, we could say. And who among us doesn't feel weak when it comes to praying? Praying scripture gives us words to say when we don't have any words to muster up. It gives us divinely inspired words to say so we don't have to worry whether this is something we should be praying for. Praying scripture directs even our emotions when sometimes our emotions are misguided or or lethargic. Now to clarify, it is right and needed, I think, to pray prayers that are free, that, that are spontaneous... The psalmist calls on God's people to pour out your heart to the Lord. And prayers which only and always lean upon the words of others, even biblical others, probably are missing something in relating to God. But, that said, when we feel weak, And when we need words and and when we need direction and what to pray for and when we find ourselves in ruts praying for the same old things in the same old ways with less feeling and passion than the last time we prayed it, well then we turn to scripture. And we're led along by its words and phrases and prayers. Listen to John Piper commend this to you. And I'll just read a few paragraphs from his book. When I don't desire God. He says, Most people, certainly including me, do not have the power of mind to look at nothing and yet offer up to God significant spiritual desires for any length of time. I suspect this has always been the case. To pray for longer than a few minutes in a God-centered, Christ-exalting way requires the help of God's Spirit, and the Spirit loves to help by the Word He inspired. There are more benefits to praying over the word in this way than the fact that it helps us stay focused. It also has the effect of shaping our minds and hearts so that we desire what the word encourages us to desire and not just what we desire by nature. He says, Most people simply bring their natural desires to God. Health, a better job, safe journeys, a prosperous portfolio, successful children, plenty of food, a happy marriage, a car that works, a comfortable retirement. None of these is evil. They're just natural. But when you saturate your mind with the Christ-exalting word of God and turn it into prayer, your desires and your prayers become spiritual. He goes on, They are shaped by the Holy Spirit into God-centered, Christ-exalting prayers. The glory of Christ and the name of God and the spiritual well-being of people. And the delight you have in knowing Jesus. These become your dominant concerns. You still pray for health and marriage and job and journeys. But now what you want to happen is that in all these, Christ will be exalted. This changes the pattern and passion of your prayers. Well, in studying Psalm 119 in recent weeks, we've been seeing that it is indeed a prayer. Or a collection of prayers. Prayed by a godly, suffering saint who talks to God about his suffering, but he runs it all through the Bible. He relates all of life to the Bible and the God of the Bible. So Psalm 119 uniquely directs us in how to pray and what to pray for and what to pray towards. The perspective that we should have in prayer, especially in times of suffering. Psalm 119 points us to the primary source for right thinking, and the primary source where we commune with the living God, the Bible. So today we come to verses 65 to 80 in this long psalm. Let this be our prayer in meditation this morning, starting in verse 65. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolent smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I've hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes that I may not be put to shame." Well, we've been learning that Psalm 119 has a number of recurring themes. And yet we've also been seeing that every stanza or every couple of stanzas has its unique emphasis. And I think our verses for this week have this emphasis. What we might call sanctifying suffering. Sanctifying suffering. Sanctifying means purifying or strengthening, spiritually speaking. And this man sees his suffering not as unfortunate or bad luck or or simply the the mean response of an angry God. No, he sees it as spiritually purifying from God, from a God who intends to grow us and, and change us and shape us, not least through pain. Three verses state it so clearly. Notice, verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now, having been afflicted, I keep your word. Verse 71, it's good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And verse 75, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous, in that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. So that's the main point of our passage, sanctifying suffering. But let me propose that there are a couple of premises which lead to the main point, and then there are a couple of results that flow out of that main point. So if you're keeping track, I have five points this morning, five headings. And the third, the middle one, is the main point, sanctifying suffering. But again, there are a couple of premises which lead us there and a couple of results that flow from it. So first, God's word is good slash better. God's word is good. It's better. In the first eight verses of our passage, there's a repetition of this word good. And the related word, at least in Hebrew, which is translated in our English Bibles as better, Six times a form of that word is found in these eight verses. The the word is good. God is good. He does good. This man's affliction is good. And he wants to learn good more and more. That's getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. Back up to just the word. The word is good. Verse 65, you have dealt well. Same word. You've dealt good. With your servant, O Lord, according to your word. God deals with his people according to his word. And his word does them good or well or better. We see in Joshua 25, sorry, Joshua 21, as the story of Joshua is beginning to wind down. It says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord made had failed. They have all come to pass. God's word is good. It is sure. And at the end of the story of Joshua, it is is true. God's word had been fulfilled. The promises haven't failed. They've even come to pass That's true, but it's not the whole story, is it? The Bible goes on from there to continue to increase and enlarge and add to those promises which begin to be fulfilled ultimately in Jesus. And as we said last week, how much more true is it in the days now of the new covenant when Christ has come, now when all the promises are yes And amen in him. That's what 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 says. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. All the promises land on Jesus. And so all the more we can say, oh, your word is, well, like verse 72, your law. The law of your mouth is better, same word, it's gooder to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is like what he said in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Or as David said in Psalm 19, more to be desired are they than gold, yea, more than fine gold. Much fine gold. Now this should really challenge us. If we had to choose between being filthy rich or having no Bible, what would we choose? Just, just let that, that theoretical deal play out in your mind. If you were told you could have unthinkable wealth and the only catch is that you have to give up Bible, all Bible, not in print, not on your phone, not on the computer, no audio, nothing for the preacher to preach from, nothing for the church to sing about, no more word of God. Would you take it? Would you take the riches? Well, I I hope you wouldn't. If you're tempted to take the riches over the word of God, I'd encourage you to ask yourself another question am I really a Christian? It might be that you are a Christian and you're just in a bad season right now. It may be that you're not a Christian. I think most of us would would face that dilemma of no Bible or all the world, and we would know we need the Bible. Without it, there isn't salvation. Without it, we don't know God. Without it, eventually, it's hell. And so I think we know this, and we can confess this, that the, the Word of God is better to us than all the riches of this world. The question is whether we actually live it, whether we actually live like it's so, like we actually use the Bible like it's more precious than gold, much fine gold. I think we take for granted the availability and the accessibleness of the Bible to us in these days. Not just this side of the printing press, though that's true, most of us have four, five, six, seven Bibles in our homes, maybe with all the points of access, including our phones, we've got Bibles coming out of our pockets. But it wasn't always like that. In God's redemptive plan, there were times, little pockets, well, sometimes long pockets, where his... Progressive revelation was put on pause, where there were no prophets speaking, where God was silent. My wife was reminding me of this this week from 2 Kings. She's been in her Bible reading in 2 Kings, and she came to 2 Kings 22 recently. And this is when Josiah was king, and Josiah was a good king, and so he was trying to restore worship to Israel, uh, to Judah, in the days after the exile, and Hilkiah, the high priest at that time, well, it says he discovered the book of the law. Just get that: the high priest discovered the Bible amidst the ruins of the temple. He he found the Bible. Apparently, the high priest didn't have the Bible in the foreign land. And so he found the Bible, he read it to the king, and the king wept and tore his clothes when he heard it because he realized how far off the mark God's people had gone. He realized that God's chastisement of his people was needed and right, and yet he also hears of God's mercy and forgiveness for those who are repentant. How sweet is that? They went from no word to word. What a difference the word makes. It rebukes, it explains, it comforts, it promises. Secondly, we see God is good and does good. Not only is his word good or better, God is good and he does good. Like verse 68 says, you are good and do good. Or also verse 65, you have dealt well with your servant. Or verse 73, your hands have made and fashioned me. He's telling God what he knows about God. No doubt in praise and thankfulness. He knows this from experience, right? You have dealt well with your servant. He's experienced it. Your hands have fashioned me. He knows who made him but he knows it not just from experience. More importantly, he knows it from God's word. Experience by itself would never be enough to interpret this life, this world, and our purposes in it or the God behind it. And so we need the Bible to explain our experience and to interpret reality to us and to show us God and to tell us what he's done and to reveal to us what he said, what he commands, what he promises, and what he wants us to do, and how he's dealt with us. Isn't that a great language there? He's dealt with us. How has he dealt with you? You might say, well, pretty good. Decent job, mid-sized home, kids that I don't want to kill, so that's good. Well, experience can tell you that God is good, and he's done pretty good to you. But only the word, the Bible, can tell you how undeserving you are of that. Only the Bible can reveal to us the answers of the questions that plague the world. These questions are for anyone who's lived any length of time in this world to get to their first trouble, their first pocket of suffering. Only the word can interpret for us what suffering is, why it's in this world, and where there's hope beyond it. Years ago, a man named Harold Kushner wrote a book that became very popular called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. He's asking the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And his answer is, we don't know why. At most, we can say, well, these are the laws of nature, or just the way things are. He says don't worry about the why, just do something. Just do something. How are you gonna respond? What are you gonna do? He says he can't imagine a God who would send bad things. He says he can't imagine a God who can even really change things. He says don't pray about your suffering God can't change it. Again, just do something. Be a better you. Well, that's about all you can get if you don't lean on the Bible. Sadly, this man was a Jewish rabbi, and he didn't lean much on the Bible at all for his question when bad things happen to good people. Never mind the fact that it's a, a misguided premise from the beginning because none of us are good. Maybe a better question is why do good things happen to bad people? Hold off on that question for now. As we come thirdly to this, that God's affliction is good and does good. The affliction God brings to his people is ultimately his doing, and it's good. And it does good. Again, this is the main point. And hence, this will occupy the majority of the rest of our time this morning. We'll get to those two results toward the end. Again, look down in your Bibles and note these key verses. Verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now, having been afflicted, I keep your word. Verse 71, It was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. And verse 75 In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. Now, on one level, we have to say that suffering and pain in this world is because it is a sin cursed world and we are sinners in it. We can't ignore that. Suffering happens because it's a fallen, cursed world. And it won't do anyone any good to pretend that the suffering isn't there or that the suffering doesn't hurt. Affliction and suffering and pain is there. and It hurts. But we have an explanation for it. Sin came into the world and this world is under judgment. That's not the only word to be heard though. We have an explanation for suffering in this world, but we also have hope beyond it. In fact, God himself suffered on our behalf so that suffering wouldn't be the final word. Jesus died on the cross for sins and sinners that they might be forgiven and restored to God and one day have no suffering whatsoever And yet the Christian who believes Jesus and follows his ways before heaven lives in an in-between world. A now and not yet. So that the suffering isn't yet fully removed. But it is transformed. It's not the same. The, The suffering now isn't judgment but God's pruning His restoration work. It's his sanctifying. This is especially clear in the New Testament. Let me just read some verses, some of which you'll be familiar with. Like Romans 8.28. That we know, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For their spiritual good. We know, Romans 5, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. Or 1 Peter 1, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, so that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Or James 1, count it all joy, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You think of those word pictures that we have in the New Testament about how God is changing us and growing us. I referred to one already from 1 Peter where trials are like gold. That is purified in the fire of trials. We also read that God is, he's the potter and we're the clay. And so he's shaping us and he's scraping us and he's putting us in the oven at times. Jesus said that he's like a gardener and we're like branches. And so he prunes us so that we bear fruit. All of these images are are ones of difficulty, of cutting, of scraping, of burning, that we might grow and that we might be more pure. But it's also in the Old Testament, especially illustrated in the Old Testament, in Egypt, when God's people were in slavery and infants were being killed by the Egyptians and work was impossible. Then they cried out to the Lord in their distress. At the Red Sea, with the Egyptian army closing in, their trust was in God because there was nothing else to trust in at that point. King David probably wrote more psalms on the run and in caves with his life being threatened than he did from the palatial. Palace of ease. You know those inscriptions we sometimes have at the beginning of a psalm? None of them say, to my knowledge, David wrote this when he was bored and rich and a little bloated from eating too much cheese that day. (laughs) No, they all spring out of suffering, anguish, agony. In Jeremiah 22, God says, I spoke to you in your prosperity, but you you said, I will not listen. Or back in the story of Job, you think of how it begins and how it ends. Job is a better Job at the end of the story than he was at the beginning. And that's saying something because he was remarkably godly at the beginning. But in between, there is great suffering and wrestling with God. And at the end, he says, I had heard about you before, but now I see you and I tremble. And don't forget Genesis 50, verse 20, the Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament. Genesis 50, 20, Joseph says to his mean brothers that tried to kill him and sell him into slavery, well, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. Now in this case, that good that God meant is very tangible and concrete and and evident. In God's providence, Joseph was sold into slavery so that one day he would be prince in Egypt. And he would would stave off a, a famine and his family wouldn't die. In the, famine. The, the promised family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that family can't die. I mean, that's got to lead to Jesus, right? And Joseph was the means by which that family didn't die in a pervasive famine. As for you, you meant it for evil, brothers, but, but God meant it for our good. But even when the good isn't tangible and obvious and evident to all, It's still good. It's still good. The principle holds up. God is always doing more than we can see. And we know this not just from the Bible, but also from our experience. Experience isn't everything, but experience is useful when the Bible is held up alongside it. Don't we all, as Christians, have some experiences of sorrow and hardness? We're now looking back We know God grew us. We we went to the Bible more eagerly and desperately in those days than we do in these days of ease, you might say. When do we pray most frequently and most naturally and most compulsively and most passionately? It's not in days of ease. It's in days of trouble. When do you come to church desperate to hear something from the living God? Desperate to sing truth with the saints? Well, it's not not when all things are going well. Affliction. Hear this word used in three different verses. It's a varied kind of word. It can refer to God's chastisement of our sin. It can refer to the experience of persecution. And it can also just refer to simple trouble and difficulty and pain. And so our afflictions vary among us, right? In degree, in length, in kind. Might be a financial crisis. Might be a wayward son or daughter. Or the loss of a child. Might be conflict With a friend or family, might be health issues, a deadly disease, or just ongoing mysterious pain. Could be problems at work or unemployment, or being misrepresented and maligned, or or dealing with mysterious, unexplainable depression, or just feeling. The weight of our guilt from some shameful sin. Well, whatever you're going through, take a a look at this guy. Learn from him. Pray his prayers if you need. The author of Psalm 119 knew that he had experienced waywardness in days of ease. He had experienced a proneness to wander when it was easy, according to verse 67. And so he learned that that suffering, yes, is a hard schoolmaster, but a good schoolmaster. It's a hard teacher, but it's a good teacher. It was good for me that I was afflicted. I learned your statutes. And he confesses that God is behind it all. God is actually the schoolmaster. It's not suffering itself like it's a thing or a person. God's behind it and He's faithful. In faithfulness, you have afflicted me. This is paradoxical thinking, I know. It's not intuitive to our natural way of thinking, and it's certainly not the immediate natural reaction when we experience pain, whether physically or emotionally. But it's true. Charles Spurgeon said, The Christian gains by his losses. He acquires health by his sickness. He becomes a conqueror through his defeats. Nothing, therefore, can be injurious to the Christian when the very worst things he has are but rough waves to wash his golden ship home to port. That's paradoxical, but it's true. And so we need reminding of it. We need constant reminding of it. It's not our natural way of thinking, and it's certainly not what the world tells us. So we need to keep reminding ourselves and each other about it. We need to prepare for seasons of suffering before they come, lest we be rocked and thrown to and fro in the midst of hard times. That's why we sing songs like we did today. Songs about suffering. Did you notice how many dealt with suffering? Like, when my spirit breaks and my days are gone, and to the grave my heart is drawn, that's someone on their deathbed. When the arrows pierce and my flesh has failed, I'll sing for joy. So lift your hands, raise your voice, shout to God with a joyful Noise. We need to keep reminding ourselves what he has said, what he's done, what he will do, what this suffering means, and what we can know of what God is doing in our suffering. We sang last week this hymn written by William Cooper who wrestled with debilitating and almost deadly depression his whole life. And yet he knew God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps on the sea and he rides upon the storm. You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break into blessings on your head. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense. But trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. We need to know, we need to memorize, along with scripture, truth like that. Over the years as a pastor, uh, almost 20 years now as a preaching pastor, I've observed countless times that there is a big difference between Someone who's investigating the sovereignty of God in Scripture out of curiosity for the intellectual pursuit of it, for the somewhat theoretical curiosity of it. There's a big difference between that and someone who is sort of learning and experiencing the sovereignty of God out of a season of pain. That realization, that experience, that that, that acceptance and learning to find comfort in God's sovereignty sometimes is powerfully learned in suffering. And that's why Martin Luther, when he came to Psalm 119, he said, this is how one learns theology, prayer, meditation, and trial." Oratio, meditatio, tentatio, prayer, meditation, trial. That's how one learns theology, according to Luther, according to Psalm 119. That's why the book of Puritan prayers that many of us have and read from and even sometimes pray is titled The Valley of Vision. Paradoxically, it's in the valley of in the Christian life that we we see best. It's a valley of vision. And doesn't the cross and resurrection teach us about suffering and sovereignty and God's goodness and his mysterious purposes, wonderful purposes, so marvelously? The cross and resurrection is... The greatest example in, in the perfect proof that God moves in mysterious ways. And at times it looks like a frown until the smile appears. You think of those two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus. Fully aware of the crucifixion of Jesus, but not yet aware of the resurrection of Jesus. And all their hopes are dashed. They're explaining this to this man who's walking on the road with them, not realizing yet that it is the risen Jesus who walks alongside them. And he begins to show them from the scriptures how it was necessary for the Messiah to not only die, but also be raised. You see, the cross and resurrection is the greatest example and perfect proof that God is doing marvelous things that we don't always see at face value or in the moment. Now I should clarify, before we move on, that we're not to go looking for suffering. None of this means that Monday morning when you step out onto the driveway, about to go to work, and you see a car there that you say, you know what, I think walking in my loafers would be more painful than driving to work. I'll choose walking because I learned on Sunday, suffering is good. No, that's not how this works. God never tells us to inflict pain on ourselves. But he does tell us to trust him when pain comes. Well, that's the main point of our passage, sanctifying suffering. Affliction for God's people is from God, and it's good, and it does good. Now, we'll cover a couple of more points just quickly. These are results, I think, that sort of flow out of that main point. So fourth, God's affliction brings encouragement to the godly. It brings encouragement to the godly. There are a couple of verses in our passage where other people are mentioned, specifically those who fear the Lord, God's people. And both times they're mentioned, the psalmist envisions his hope-filled endurance in suffering to bring encouragement to others. So verse 74, those who fear you shall see me, what I've gone through and how I've endured it, and they'll rejoice because I've hoped in your word. And verse 79, let those who fear you turn to me that they may know your testimonies. He envisions and prays for trickle-down blessing. Blessing from God to him and then through him to others. He wants his godly suffering to serve and better others. This reminds me of 2 Corinthians 1 in the New Testament where Paul writes, the father of mercies and the God of all comfort comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Isn't this amazing? And this tells us that in your trial, whatever it is, however bad, however long, if you're a Christian, God will give you supernatural comfort that's more than enough of what you need. More than you need. He'll give you enough comfort so that there's some left over for you to comfort others who are also going through suffering now it doesn't feel like that's the case God has purposes for us feeling like there isn't enough comfort right he he is glorified for us to come to the end of ourselves and call out to him for more but we Christians simply need to believe that this is true that God gives enough comfort for our trials in fact more than enough he wants us in our trials to think about others and once again this is not our natural instinct Trials come, we fold in on ourselves, we focus on ourselves, we pity ourselves. And others suffering, well, no matter what it is, it's probably not as bad as mine, or at least you're enduring it better than I am. But 2 Corinthians 1, along with Psalm 119, would encourage us to think about others in the midst of our suffering. Because more is at stake than simply us getting through it. In fact, more is at stake than us simply getting it right about what's going on. More is at stake than even us simply growing in our faith through our suffering. Others are suffering as well. And God plans to use us as conduits of his comfort, not just reservoirs. This is why we need to pray Scripture, because you wouldn't think to think about others in the midst of your suffering, and neither would I unless Scripture told you and showed you. Well, finally, another result, or maybe a, a reality of this sanctifying suffering. Fifth, the enemy's affliction does no real harm. The enemy's affliction does no real harm. A couple of times in our passage, he mentions the specific suffering at the hands of others. We can call them the enemies. Don't think in terms of personal enemies. Think in terms of the enemies of God who sometimes take aim at and seek to do harm to God's people. So verse 69, The insolent smear me with lies, But with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat. But I delight in your law. Verse 78, let the insolent be put to shame because they've wronged me with falsehood. As for me, I will meditate on your precepts. It's not that their lies aren't lies. It's not that their smears aren't smears. It's not that their wrongs aren't wrong. And it's not that it isn't painful to experience. But it can't keep this man from doing what is most important. Whatever they do, they can't keep him from what is most important. They're doing their thing, but I'm going to keep your precepts. They're doing their thing, but I delight in your law. They're they're attacking me, but I will meditate on your precepts. In the language of the psalm before, Psalm 118 The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Well, they can kill you. But that's it. That's it. That's what Jesus said. That's all they can do. They can only kill you. Which would be everything if it weren't for eternity. And eternity with God. But with eternity, in eternity with God, death is nothing. Death is merely the passageway to eternal life and the presence of God and sinlessness and worship with heaven's angels. Oh, what can they do to me? Nothing can keep you from obeying God's commands, even if it's the last thing you do. No one can keep your mind off God's word if it's buried down deep in your mind and heart. No circumstances can change God's love and no circumstances should lead you to think that he isn't loving. Romans 8. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, Tribulation? Distress? Persecution? Famine? Nakedness? Danger? Sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I pray you know that this morning. I pray, Christian, you feel that this morning. I pray we would all live like that. And I pray for you, if you're not a Christian, that you'd come to understand this, that you'd look to Jesus for salvation, believe on his name, be saved, be forgiven, be reconciled to God, and And get this transformed outlook on suffering. For suffering isn't just unfortunate. It doesn't just stink. It isn't just the way it is. And neither is it because God is mean and doesn't like you. In Christ, suffering is for our good. And there is nothing anyone can do to us that will bring us real lasting harm. Or take us away from his love. Well, let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for your love. Shown to us supremely in the death of Jesus for our redemption. Lord, we do pray for those with us who haven't yet come to believe it. We pray today they would come to believe that. We pray for all of us, Lord, to hear the... We would continue to trust you not just with our souls and not just for eternity, but we would trust you for tomorrow. We would trust you for the ins and outs of life, for the mountains, the valleys, and the plateaus. Lord, we thank you that affliction humbles us, makes us more dependent on you, prunes us, pulls us off of love for the world, makes us long for heaven, and helps us to identify with Jesus who suffered for us. Paul said, I want to share in his sufferings and become like him. May we want to pray that more and more as we trust you for life and eternal life. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.